ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello and welcome. It's another Books of the Year podcast from your friends at Books of the Year. It is. We are absolutely your friends, as we say at the start of all of these podcasts, in fact. I think kind of like a special friend. Yes, the kind of friend that you never meet and talks to you. But if you do if you do meet, you can always rely on us to lend you a fibre. <laughs> really? No. I'm not going to set that precedent. Thank you. Thanks for getting in touch. There was a tweet from Lenny Law, uh, who enjoyed our episode with Ben McIntyre end of last year. Lenny has corresponded to every single programme I've ever done. Going back to Radio 1. Really? He used to write in Good at Radio work, 1. And every time he produces content, it's it's worth looking okay. at. Anyway, he says, uh, Ben McIntyre has in recent years produced one brilliant book after another. In almost every case, covering ground already well covered and telling us stories we already know, but doing so with the benefit of his wry and forensic intelligence to give the tales a fresh life. I mean, I do think in the Colditz book, there were loads of stories that people, I mean, obviously, generally the story of Colditz, but that story he told about the guy who had an affair with the dentist, dentist in the village. Yeah. I don't think we've heard that before. No, no. The, 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 every page of that book has got a story that you <clears> think, wow, imagine that. Uh, an email from Alex Bell. Simon and Matt, I remember many moons ago you spoke to the brilliant author Michael Connolly, uh, June 2021, in fact. Uh, at the time, I had never read any of the Bosch series, but I enjoyed your conversation with him, was intrigued by the sound of the books. I've now just finished all of the Bosch books, all 24 of them, akin to discovering a new box set on Netflix. I have been a spoilt child devouring all of these novels over the past 18 months, and I have to say, although some were better than others, there was not one that I didn't enjoy, and I'm now planning to move on to his Lincoln Lawyer books, a project for the new year. Keep up the good work, Al in Bristol. Thank you, Al. Yes, and he's got. there's a new book out. Oh, Really? Wondering whether it's already... I think it's already out. OK, OK. I did ask for a copy of that. It's coming, apparently. Oh, right. I mean, I might have to go... And Actually buy a book. Buy a, Imagine that. Buy a copy. Oh, dear. Anyway, um, if you'd like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Books of the Year at yahoo.com. You can email us there. We're on Twitter at Books of the Year and on Instagram at Pick Any Page. Anyway, onwards. Okay, so on Books of the Year, delighted to welcome Cariad Lloyd. You are not alone. A new way to grieve is brand new. Cariad, hello. How are you? I'm I'm good, thank you. Yes, I'm all right. It's very nice to see you. <laughs> Almost every single book 
called You Are Not Alone is about spaceships and aliens. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Normally people say to me, is it Michael Jackson? Is it something to do with that song? (laughs) I was like, no, it didn't even occur to me that that was anything to do with it. So it's not about spaceships. No, the clue... is is also on the cover. Well, Matt, you describe it. Yes. Okay. So it's a uh, white background. It's, it's pretty simple, really. Uh, it's "You Are Not Alone" picked out in uh, multicoloured letters uh, right across the front, and then from the creator of Grief Cast, Carrie Lloyd at the top and at the bottom, a new way to grieve. Do you notice the O is grey? <laughs> the O of not is grey, you see, because that's all alone. It's surrounded oh, by colour. Oh, no, I hadn't noticed that. So the O of <laughs> not. Yeah. So no one is going to notice that. <laughs> but it's a little, uh, what's the word, um, Easter egg for your listeners. There is. I remember, didn't we, we, we had another author who was years ago came in and said, did you notice that the cover of the front cover of my book actually looks like a face? And none of us had seen that it looked like a face <laughs> at all. It was Andrew, Andrew Hunter-Murray. Oh, and my was... friend, Andrew Hunter-Murray, okay, yes. So... Oh, yes, he said that to me and I was like, oh, oh yeah, now you say it. Um, my instinct is, much like you, he went round all of his interviews saying, oh, have you noticed that it looks like a human face? You do no that. You do the Jane Austen stuff together, I do Ostentatious you? with Andrew Hunter-Murray, the That's delightful right. Andy, yeah. But no, I don't expect anyone. No one's ever described it. So I was like, oh, if you're describing it, the O is grey. Has was... everyone in that uh, troupe Got a book out. Uh, there's a few of us, yeah. Yes. So Rachel's came out last year, Rachel Paris. Andy writes novels, so he's on his. He's just had his second come out. And that's it, and me. Yeah, not everyone. <laughs> so the clue as to the content of the book is from the fact it says, from a creator of Griefcast. So just yes. tell us the genesis of this book. That Tell us about Griefcast and how this book came to be. So I started Griefcast, a podcast, in 2016, which is, uh, I'm a comedian, that's my background, a comedian, actor, writer, from whatever someone will pay me to do, basically. And I started interviewing comedians about their experiences of grief and death. Now, the reason I chose that subject is way back in 1998, when I was 15, my dad died of pancreatic cancer. So I'd spent a long time dealing with my grief, talking about grief to other people, And in 2016, I don't know if you remember, it was real like birth of podcasts and everyone was doing podcasts. And I was walking along the road and I thought, oh, God, if I had a podcast, it'd be about death. (laughs) No one would ever listen to that. And then this just wouldn't go away. I just kept thinking, oh, why why don't you do that? Okay. So I interviewed four comedians, first of all, Sarah Pascoe, Adam Buxton, Jade Adams and a producer called John Harvey. And I just put the episodes out there. John Harvey, now known as Count Binface. Count Binface, yes. Who has yes. a book out. Who has a book out, yeah, my <laughs> dear friend John. They're all doing it. Oh, do it well. You've got to do something in lockdown, haven't you? <laughs> and it just went, for a wonderful, more eloquent phrase, it went nuts. As soon as I put the episode out there, I started getting email after email after email. People being like, I didn't know anyone else felt like this. I thought I was having a breakdown. I didn't know what grief was. And I sort of realised that I'd opened a big door without meaning to, with very much without meaning to, and was like, oh, okay, this is something that lots of people want to talk about. So I carried on doing the podcast. I'm now in my sixth year of doing it, 10th season, nearly at 200 episodes. So it sort of has rolled on and on. And then the book came out of the podcast because I thought, well, why don't I write down everything I've learned along the way? So this is a kind of a distillation of... A lot of podcasting. A lot of conversations, yeah. So I've had so many conversations about grief and death with, in inverted commas, normal people, comedians. And then um, I also have done a lot of episodes with death services professionals. So that's like death doulas or palliative care doctors and that sort of thing. And I thought, well, I've kind of gathered all this information about 
grief and death and how it happens. And often when I spoke to other listeners, they'd be like, oh, I didn't know that. I, didn't. I thought, God, Pete, there's loads of stuff that, because we don't talk about it, people just don't often know certain things. And when you sort of join the club, as we say on the show, there's all this information that you might not know. A bit like, I guess, when you, you know, if you become a parent, there's all this, like, oh, God, I didn't, I didn't know that's what you what you're supposed to do with nappies when they're finished um put them in the bin and uh, so i yeah it's the distillation of everything i learned and then also it's the chapters are interspersed with my story like vignettes of my grief because i kind of wanted to share that side of it as well of like how i found a sort of very wiggly journey through it all from starting at the beginning of being 15 and being like completely shocked and devastated and what the just happened to me and then working my way through to 20 plus years on and being like oh okay I know how I can exist with this grief now why do you think it had that your podcast had the reaction that it did yeah it's interesting I mean I think even now it has got better and people are willing to talk about grief a little bit but I think it's funny isn't it 2016 isn't a long time ago but it it is when we think what we've all been through and people just weren't talking about death in the way that I was and that's why another reason I started it my grief when I went to the internet with my grief at the time if I was trying to look for help or it was like full of this kind of tone of like you know I hope you're okay and be strong and memes of like beaches with a font being like they walk with you and I was like that's not my experience of it and I I really wanted to create a space where it was honest and we laughed and we talked about like the really stupid things that happened or maybe someone who died who was annoying and how you thought they were annoying, <laughs> but you're still sad they died or that a doctor said something really inappropriate, but you made, made you laugh your head off, but you were still sad to kind of like talk about the actual like real mess of it all, the kind of humanity of it all, rather than grief being this very holy, noble thing that happens. And when someone dies, they become this saint and, that just wasn't my experience of it. So I think what I had experienced, this mess, this grief mess, as I say in the book, actually a lot of people had experienced. And I thought I was alone, hence the title. <laughs> and then when I did the show, I was like, oh, it's not just me who feels like this. Everybody feels like this. So, um, yeah, I think that's why it's been recognisable to other people. Early on in the book, you say uh, at its most useful, this, this book is a map. Yes. Can you explain it? <laughs> well, I think... When you lose someone very close to you, when someone you love very dearly dies, and that can be someone you don't get on with as well, just to caveat that, you're left in a new world. How do I exist without that person there, without my relationship to them? And you kind of need a map. And all the maps we've been given before are wrong. <laughs> so we've been told, oh, like, there's five stages or you'll eventually get over it and about two years should be okay. And it's not true. So I'm trying to create a map which tells you how to carry on going with the grief in your world and that can be quite a nuanced thing to get across hence there needed to be a book about it because people think well when am I going to stop feeling sad and what I'm saying is you're not you're not going to stop feeling sad but you will learn to grow a life around that and the sadness will be there all the time but some days you won't think about it or some days you won't be crying but it doesn't stop being that you don't stop being sad that somebody died so you have to learn to carry it lightly and so the map in the book is like a way to to navigate that, to get through to get through it rather than over it. You just mentioned the five stages, which yes. you have a good old rant about. <laughs> I do yeah. Uh, in the book, tell us, in case people haven't encountered them, what they are and why they anger you. So, <laughs> so the five stages um, is the most traditional grief theory. 
Um, it was invented in 1969 by an amazing woman, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, in her book on death and dying. And it's the idea that when someone dies, you go through five distinct stages. So I always get the order wrong, but it's like anger, denial, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And you go through them and then you get to acceptance and you're fine. You're over it, inverted commas. And this is the sort of theory that I think most people are vaguely aware of. If they haven't lost someone or they don't know anything about grief, they're like, oh, yeah, five, yeah, five stages. You're probably going through the five stages. And I had my experience of grief. I thought I should go through the five stages and I didn't. I got stuck on anger for a long time. And a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of listeners have emailed me, stopped me in the street and gone, oh, I know I'm doing it wrong because I'm not doing the five stages. So I got to the point, I thought, well, what? what is this five state? Like, what is this five? Like, I'm going to, where does it come from? So I read on death and dying, which most people haven't read. <laughs> and she wrote it for people who were dying of terminal illness. It's not for people grieving. That's not its original concept. It was in America in the 60s. People were going into hospital with what they didn't know was cancer. So they would just say, oh, you have a malignancy. And they would give them drugs or medication or treatment, which they would tell them is going to make them better. And then they would die. And so, obviously, it was awful. It was awful. People, their family didn't know. People didn't understand what's happened to them. So she was going into hospitals at the time and she basically said, look, if you tell people with a terminal illness they're dying, they'll go through five distinct stages. They'll be angry. They'll deny, no, I'm I'm fine. They'll bargain. Or maybe God will save me. They'll be depressed. I can't believe I'm dying. And then they will accept it. That was her observation. Because at the time, people were saying, oh, you mustn't tell someone they're dying. It's so it's so frightening. So she was like, it's not frightening. They can deal with it. And then somehow this got twisted into that's what happens after someone dies. But that was never her theory. And she said years later, it's been misinterpreted. And, you know, you can apply it to grief loosely. But the reason it makes me so angry is it gives people this idea that it's linear, that grief is a process. I'll go through oh, two and a half years, maybe two years, six months. I'll be I won't ever feel like this again. And they get to that point and then they're upset and they're disappointed and they think they've done something wrong and they feel ashamed and they don't talk about it so much because they think, oh, I'm obviously, you know, I shouldn't be this sad. And it's absolutely not true. No academic agrees with, agrees with it now. You will be sad for the rest of your life. That doesn't mean you cry every day. That doesn't mean you you can't get up or you don't have any joy in your life. But there will be a part of you that is sad that they died. When you say that out loud, you're like, yeah, of course. <laughs> You're never going to be like, oh, my dad died at 15. And I am fine with that. What? Couldn't care less. I'm always going to think, oh, that's a shame. I'd rather it didn't happen. But I have an amazing life that's full of joy and happiness. But there's always a part of that that is a sadness for that. So it's, it's what I mean. It's like learning to carry that sadness rather than try and remove that sadness, which I think a lot of people, when they start working with grief, that's the aim. It's like, all right, when, when am I going to feel better? I'm never. When am I not going to feel sad? And if you can change that in your head to how can I learn to carry my sadness? I think you've touched on something there, Carrier, which I think is it's the most beautiful part of the book for me. Well, there are, there's something else that we're going to get to later. But it's your discussion of the five steps, just because people tend to see it as a bit like, so if my boiler breaks, yes. I can go on YouTube and I can watch a really nice plumber yep. who's going to show, right, you press this button and then that, and then you run the tap and then suddenly your boiler's working again. And with those five steps, you feel, right, if I do that, then that, then that, 
and then I'm feeling better. Yeah. And obviously that's not the case. Here's, so the reason I um, I really uh, connected with your book, so there are two parts of a bookshop that I will never go into, okay? <laughs> One is fantasy, I'm not interested in sure, dragons, sure. and the second is self-help. Yeah. Because four steps or four secrets of the rich and beautiful turns out to be have a rich daddy and good bone structure. And it's like, <laughs> great, thanks very much. You've read, you, so you've read them? No, no. I get, so I get sent, uh, the, the number of books I get sent by people who won the Rugby World Cup and now think they know everything about success. I'm oh, like, okay. that was 20 years ago, lad. Um, so I, I cannot stand self-help books. Sure. I would argue your book is the opposite to a self-help book because it's basically, yeah. as you've already said, that map is not a, here's a route. No. It's a, these are the things that might happen, but if they don't happen in the order that I'm saying, that's okay. Yeah. You'll still be on this map. You're still, you're not doing it wrong it's just this is the environment that you're in. Yeah, it's almost like I'm giving you like a map of the area around you rather than being like, mm. this had to get to A to B. I'm like, there's a forest there. Mm -hmm. There's a really big, scary pond. Watch out. <laughs> okay. You might go there. I don't know. You might not. I've just let you know there was a massive pond over there. Yeah. And that's, I grew up with a lot of self-help. My parents were very into self-help. And so I read a lot of self-help and fantasy. Interesting. Oh, you know? really? um, we'll get on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, big, <clears throat> big Lord of the Rings fans, as, as you see in the book. And um it's interesting to me. I think having read a lot of self-help, there's some really good self-help and there's some obviously awful stuff, but I really wanted it to be not self-helpy in um, this solution-based. It's not solution-based, having read those ones. And for six months, you do everything they say and you feel amazing. And then you can't, you can't keep it up. You can't constantly be positively thinking. That's not how it works. So I wanted it to be a practical guide, much more in the kind of um, manual bit of the bookshop you know like how to fix your boiler a bit like practical advice rather than that self-help if you do this everything's fine because I just don't think that exists for anybody I don't you know even when it comes to success or beauty or any of these mental health you know it's personal and it's difficult and nothing is easy sometimes it is sometimes it isn't so yeah I think I'm glad it's just trying to make a map of the area not a route through it basically. and I think it's important to add there that you're not setting yourself up as having any answers either no, no. Um, so there's I, I remember um, I think it was on the West Wing there was uh, one I can't remember which character but one of the characters is having a bad time and one of the others comes to him and says let me tell you this story there's a guy walking down the street falls down a hole and he's desperate to try and get out he can't climb out the hole the hole's too deep and he's calling out for help and people are just walking past and um, a, a doctor walks past. He says, help me, help me, help me. And the doctor writes a prescription, throws it down. <laughs> no use at all. Help, help, help. And a, a, a priest is walking past and he writes down a prayer, throws it down to him, no use. And then another guy jumps into the hole with him. And he's like, what are you doing? Now we're both stuck in this hole. And the guy <laughs> says, yeah, but I know the way out. <laughs> now, the reason I'm telling that story is that's, that's not what you're setting yourself up as. Yeah. Or in a... I suppose to stretch the metaphor even more, you're saying there are multiple ways out of this hole and my way might not be the one that works for you. Yeah. I'm sort of shouting at the edge of the hole being like, I did get out, by the way. <laughs> and they'd be like, great, when? I'm like, I don't know. You just have to wait. But I'm telling you, I did eventually get out of that hole. I'll stay here. And that's what I mean. It's like, so you're not alone in the hole. <laughs> and a big... A big thing with my listeners and with grief is that you literally you feel isolated. So the part of your brain that lights up in depression lights up in grief and it makes you feel like no one understands. And one of the things everybody says helps is knowing that your situation is not just you. So if you can find someone that has lost some the same member of the family from the same disease at the same age, it's a very... Um, 
connective feeling where you're like, oh, wow, God, I thought it was just me feeling that. And I write about that in the book. A woman emailed me who was like, I was 15 when my dad died of pancreatic cancer in New Zealand. And we were basically the same age. And both of us were like, oh, oh my, oh my God. <laughs> like, and it's it shouldn't matter, but it does to know that other people have been through the thing that you've been through. It's just that I think we're such tribal beings that just to go, oh, okay, like I'm not the only one that has suffered this and you have suffered it and you're standing and walking and talking. You're not a puddle on the floor. So maybe I'm going to be okay. I think that's really important. It was Leo talking to Josh in the West Wing. Oh, well done. Well <laughs> oh, done. God, West Wing knowledge. Well, <clears throat> there's a production team that <laughs> look at these things. Oh, okay. um, you, you've mentioned so the, uh, the wisdom which you have shared and other people have, have shared with you, but also, as you said, the, the more personal uh, bits in the book, which said if you don't want to weep, you know, you can always skip. You can always skip yeah, those yeah, bits. Yeah. <laughs> the, the most affecting bit, I thought, was almost a throwaway line where you... You write, you say, I can't even remember what the story is, but you say, mum and me, and then you put in brackets, mum and I, sorry, dad. (laughs) It's almost like you can still hear uh, his voice. And I thought, that's the kind of thing that I would (laughs) say as well. But you do get, you know, you write in the book early on, Peter Fraser Lloyd, 1953 to 1998. That must have been quite special I would imagine just writing that section about yeah. him yeah it was really uh, hard <laughs> it was really hard because I talk I talk a lot about grief but I don't often talk about him so when I came to write the book the chapters that are more like about grief like the five stages or how the Victorians grieved or digital grief I'm like yeah, you're fine and then when I had to write about him I was like oh my god because it was all this stuff that I just hadn't thought about since I was 15 and I don't often say his name but the irony is every time I do the show Griefcast the first thing I say is what was the person's name and we say their name out loud because you don't often get to say the dead person's name so yeah when I had to write his name and date I was like oh you know it still hits me because it's just um the older I get and the nearer I get to the age he was when he died it's like you start realising how young he was. Whereas obviously when I was 15, he was 44. And I thought, I actually genuinely thought, well, he was old and old people die. So I thought it was kind of normal that he had died. And now I'm like, yeah, it's not that old, 44, at all. So, um, yeah, it was it was very nice to be able to write it down. And my mum, you know, is kept saying, oh, God, he'd be so pleased. There's a whole book about him. <laughs> like, he'd be very, oh, yeah, he'd like that a lot. But it was also very difficult to have to face those things again can you tell us about the badges oh the badges yeah so in the show on Griefcast, i had several guests in interviews say god we need a badge don't we We need a badge that says like i'm grieving because we don't have black armbands anymore particularly i know they just still wear them you know like soldiers or sports or something but not day to day my mum is i think the last generation when her granny died, she went to school with a black armband on. But like, obviously, I don't know anyone who has that experience. So we kept saying, God, we should have some badges. And an amazing artist, Camille Bazzini, got in touch with me. And she was like, oh, I've designed some. <laughs> and I was like, great. So we joke all the time, like, oh, it's a club. I was like, well, then we need club badges. So she designed these amazing enamel badges that just said please be kind I'm grieving it had like two hands and then some of them had a little ghost on with a hat that said DDC which is dead dad club and there was another ghost with a hat with a flower on that was DMC dead mum club and it just said I'm in the club and um, we started selling them and they just I couldn't keep up because (laughs) it's just me always doing these things so I couldn't keep up with how many badges we were selling 
And then people start getting in touch. Like a, a listener just emailed said, oh, I was on the train to Brighton and someone stopped me. And we're like, what? what's your badge? Because it said, you know, please be kind, I'm, gr- I'm grieving. And she explained. And then they said, oh, I've just lost my mum. And they just sat and had this conversation on the train. And again, for me, it's always about connection. Like they wouldn't have been able to have that chat had she not worn the badge because we're always afraid to ask and we don't know and we don't understand what people are going through. But in the same way as you have a, you know, baby on board when you're on the tube and you're pregnant, because sometimes people don't, it's awkward to ask a woman if she's pregnant. It's just to have this thing to say, be gentle with me. Like I'm not in a good space. Like I've just lost someone. My skin is not really here. Like I'm down to sinews. And um, unfortunately, we're not producing at the moment because I've got too much to do with the book. But I'm sure we will bring them back because they're just they've just been so, so popular. You mentioned you're a comedian and that you the whole point of in the first place was that you were going to talk to comedians. Do comedians have have a particular take on this or actually? Are they, I mean, obviously, they're just the same. But I just <laughs> wonder whether a comedian has a has a particularly and identifiably strong take on this topic. I think what comedians do, and the reason I love talking to comedians about death, is they make jokes. And they are, they're not willing, they're not embarrassed about that. So we'll talk about a death and they'll crack a joke and we'll laugh and then we'll go back to the sad bit. But they don't feel ashamed of that. And my experience of, again, talking to listeners was that people would say things like, oh, don't tell anyone, but we when they were dying, this thing happened and we all laughed. And I was like, why are we so ashamed of funny things happening? Because it's life, right? Like you can go to a coffee shop, someone can fall over and it's funny. You can go to a hospital, someone can fall over and it's funny. It doesn't matter where you are, funny things may happen. And in that extreme moment, you know, if you've been in the hospital with someone dying, you haven't left and you're exhausted. And, you know, I remember someone talking about you know, the cleaner coming past and just like hoovering silently as she was trying to say goodbye to her mum and the cleaner being like, sorry, it won't be long. Won't be long. <laughs> and, you know, it's fu- it's funny. You can't help but just be like, oh, this is, this is very absurd and silly. So I think the difference that comedians have with, inverted commas, normal people, is that they don't feel ashamed of when the jokes happen. They're like, yeah, things are funny. It's, it, it's so true that those those funny things. Like I, I remember when my my uncle was dying, and he was in um, Fazakerley Hospital, which is in Liverpool. So he's from Liverpool, and we were all gathered around his bed. It was quite clear he was he was not going to be for long. And the, uh, the a bloke came in who was going to make drinks for everyone in the ward. Oh, so yeah. we're all in the ward, and we're all gathered around. Me, would anyone like a drink? And we're basically me, um, my wife, my dad. Everyone is like, no, 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 we're fine, we're fine. You just want this guy to go, yeah, just go, just because, go, because you know we just want to be with. You want uncle. which guy to go? The, Your the, uncle? No, 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 the guy who's oh. the guy who's <laughs> dispensing <laughs> drinks. Anyway, so we just want him to go. Meanwhile, my uncle is. Do you do Fanta? And, <laughs> and and it said, and so the guy's going. I don't think we do Fanta, no. And he says, well, I don't like fizzy drinks. Do you do Coke? Do you do, and and you're like, but you don't like fizzy drinks, Stan. Why are you asking about don't, Fanta and lemonade? Don't worry about it. Just, don't worry about and it. He went through every, and I promise you, every drink you can think of that oh. has carbonated water in it. <laughs> He went through, do you do lemonade? No. And I remember there was a bloke at the other end of the um, ward who was losing his mind. It is the single thing that I remember from that day, and it always, always makes me giggle. And here's another point to talk about comedians. Is it is, yes, it is, it is true that comedians can find something funny in it. I would argue as well they are able to uncover an aspect of something that you'd not thought of before. Yeah. 
And there is a line that you use very early in the book. And I have to tell you, as soon as I read it, it stopped me in my tracks. I was reading it on the tube. And it felt to me like a throwaway line. But it's so good. You talked about grief being like moss growing on a oh, rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, that is such, it's such a good way of describing it because the moss will grow thicker. Uh, on some days, and sometimes that 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 moss will actually be soft to the touch, but it's still a rock, yeah, and yeah. it's not going to stop being a rock. As I said at the start, I I took it because it literally is just one line at the bottom. I think it's even a footnote. <laughs> it is a footnote, yeah. <laughs> were, were you thinking about that at all? Because it's so, I, I, it stopped me in my tracks. I was just trying to get because again, I think when you don't know, if you've got no experience of grief and you join the club, the first thing everyone says to me is, "How? how when's it going to end? How can I get through this?" Like I literally get messages going, "How much? Two weeks? What? What? Three? I can't. I'm already mad. Like, make tell me when it's going to end." And I have to be like, "Ooh." You know how I'm 20 plus years talking about it? <laughs> like, it's not going to end. And I'm trying to get people to see, I think maybe it's a bit of a um, cliche thing to say, but, you know, because of the internet, because of the speed that we get things, we're quite impatient these days. And I'm naturally impatient and I've got worse because of the speed of the world. And I think it's that thing of going back to nature a bit and being like, things take time. Things take time. It's as slow as this. Like, like you said, and I think moss just has a good, it's a good image for everybody, isn't it? Because like you said, it's soft and hard, and but it's very determined. And I read a book about moss years ago. And actually moss is like, can really take over an entire thing very, without you realising it's happening. Like, but over 100 years can destroy a whole field. And that's not saying that grief would destroy it, but it's this thing of like the determination of grief. If you think you can somehow bypass it you can't and I did the only reason I say this I did it for years I thought if I run fast enough if I never think if I never stop I'm gonna outrun this grief and it will not get me and of course I ate 30 I was like oh I'm having a small breakdown it has found me and so I'm always trying to say to people just try and deal with it now like try and start thinking about it now open the box now a little bit off like little and often because if you try and think I'm gonna put this away and it's not gonna get me it, it is it is it's like you know caveat humanity no one's ever got away with that so it's it's trying to get people to slow down in how they think about grief because you can't think about it in terms of fixing a boiler or getting something done or sending an email it's like no this is like a lifelong slow process hopefully when you were telling that story matt about your uncle oh yeah for some reason <clears throat> and i haven't thought of this episode for decades I remember, I think it was Parkinson interviewing Peter Ustinov. Wow. And Ustinov, now, this may well be an apocryphal story, but <laughs> Peter Ustinov said it, so I, I go. Yeah. And Ustinov is telling a story about the death of Franco. Wow. And that Franco is on his way out. Uh, there are crowds outside the palace and all his attendants are, uh, are, are around him. And he comes to and he hears the crowd and Franco says... Uh, what's that noise? And one of his attendants says, it's the people of Spain. They've come to say goodbye. And Franco says, where are they going? <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm not sure about that story because it puts Franco in a good light, but it's quite a funny story. Maybe, maybe it could change it to a Churchill story. <laughs> anyway, and the other story that occurred to me was when you're reading this book, uh, and you have young children. Yeah. There was a TV series. I don't know if it's still on at the moment, but when my kids were younger, we always watched Pingu. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Still which is... It. Still going. Is it, it's, it's a Scandinavian story, kind of yeah. wordless um, story about a very young penguin who's very Cheeky funny. penguin, yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
You might think it's the clangers, but it's yeah, not. No, it, no, it, it's, Pingu. it's Pingu. And Pingu's dad is a postman. And there's one episode where he joins his dad on the post round and his dad obviously has a, a message of the announcement of, of someone's oh, yes, death. I've and seen it's, this episode. it's an envelope uh, edged in black. Oh. Yeah. And so they knock on the door and they hand this letter over and there's an elderly penguin. The yeah. elderly penguin starts to cry and yeah. they, you know, there's a little brief moment. He then, and Pingu is sitting on the back of the sledge. Pingu's father then gets back on the sledge and it goes off slightly too fast. And it's just a slapstick moment because Pingu falls off the back and everyone laughs. But it was, oh, my word, oh, my word, oh, that's so sad. Yeah. Beats, pause, comedy. Yeah. And it was a, it's a genius scene because it obviously opens up the opportunity of talking to very young children about grandparents or, yeah, or whatever yeah. they are, wherever, whatever <clears throat> stage they are. And I was wondering whether there's a version of what you're doing for kids. I might be working on it. <laughs> right. That wasn't a note from your publisher. That was just me thinking, you know, because that, yeah. that's a whole that's a whole different world. It's a whole different world. Um, I get asked again a lot about talking to kids, and I talk to my well, my son's too young really, but my daughter is six, and I talk to her a lot because my husband, both his parents are dead, so she only has one grandma left. <laughs> We're very keen that she doesn't climb ladders or go out in the snow. Um, so we do talk to her a lot about people dying and a lot about death. And I've got friends who say, oh, you know, they said, do I die? And I just changed the subject. And I was like, you you have to get practice at these conversations. And it's it's not easy. It's really difficult. But if one child says to you, am I going to die? And you say, yeah. You will die and I will die. We don't know when. And, you know, hopefully I'm very sure it won't be for a long time. But yes, everybody dies. You're just setting in motion the idea for a child that death isn't something terrifying that must never happen. And if it happens, it is the worst thing that can happen. It's just getting that idea of like, we are, it's not a lie. We are all going to. And I think that was a big thing for me when my dad died. It was shock, utter, utter shock. Like what? I didn't know what death was. I'd never encountered it before. Um, to be fair, I don't think my parents didn't answer it. I don't think I particularly asked because it, you know, I don't know. We had a hamster die. That was about it. <laughs> and um, but I think it's okay to talk to kids about it because I think often we have this idea it's that it's contagious. Like if you say it, it will happen. And it's a very um, sort of you know that sort of tribal again primal superstition that we have as humans of like d just don't mention it. But it is going to happen. And if you can start bringing it up lightly when everybody's well, then hopefully when it does happen, you know, for example, especially with grandparents, it won't be such a like, oh, my God, like this is what on earth? How will we ever cope again? It'll be like, oh, yes, that's what happens mm. to people. So I think you have to be a bit brave about it. But obviously, I know it isn't easy. I, I went to a show at the Palladium a couple of weeks ago where Bono is doing a series called One Man Shows oh, talking wow. about his memoir. And grief is a big part of that conversation. He tells the story about how the last time he saw his mother, he I think he was 15, 16, 17, oh, wow. 18 maybe, was at the funeral for his grandfather. Oh, wow. And she collapses, goes to hospital, doesn't come out of hospital. And then he says, and her name was never mentioned again. Yeah. And... It's really common. He said he was there in the house with his father and his brother. And they never mention. I mean, I found yeah. that. You think it's that's common, common? Yeah, yeah. Is that a generational thing? Uh, I think it's <clears throat> lots of things. I think it's not just generational. It depends on the environment that you're in. Do you know what I mean? Of like, if you have a family that's communicative, basically. There's an amazing writer called Richard Beard, and he wrote a brilliant, brilliant book called The Day That Went Missing. And I mean, he is older than me. His brother drowned in the sea, and Nicky, when they were, you know, he was only a year older, and he was in the sea with his brother. 
one of four boys and they went back home and they never mentioned him again to the point where like he got into his 40s and he was like I don't even know when he died or when his birthday was like it had just been erased from the history and they were on holiday when it happened and they went back home for the funeral and then they went back to finish the holiday in Cornwall and I mean that's a very extreme example and what you said about Bono is also extreme but I I get regular emails from people saying you know, my so-and-so died, my mum died, this side, and the rest of my family have decided we're not talking about it. So it, it is common. I think it's probably not as common as it used to be, but it's a real thing we need to get past. And that's what I mean. If you talk to kids when they're young about death, you're not going to get to a situation where you never mention it again. If it can start being part of the conversation and not being a... In, or when, you know, you're talking about someone, and, what's that? Who died? You don't go, no one. You go, oh, uh, one of grandma's friends just died of cancer. It's very sad, isn't it? Grandma's a bit sad. Oh, okay. Like, they can just take it in little and often because I think it, it isn't... Yeah, it isn't uncommon to have this idea of, like, never mentioned again. And that is very, very painful for grief. It stops grief getting processed. I want to talk to you, Carrie, about what to say. Oh, what, yes. Um, there is, uh, and I can't remember whether um, he's mentioned in your book, uh, the comedian Rob Delaney, uh, who uh, lost his son. Yes, I interviewed him, but he's not in the book. I okay. it was afterwards, yeah. Um, and I, I remember listening to a podcast he did recently where he was talking about, um, talking about this. His son had died very young. And he talked about the challenges that other people, that friends had in being able to yeah. talk to him because what on earth do you say? And his point was just just be there. Yeah. Just sit next to me and be there. But if we take it as if we take it as the the baseline is just be there and just talk about it, there are certain things that it's not a great idea to say <laughs> as well. And I just want I I do want to explore that, but I, but I want to put the big caveat in at the start of <clears throat> Saying nothing is is worse than yes, saying the wrong. wrong thing. Yeah. Because the fear that people have, I'm, I'm going to say the wrong thing, therefore I'll just step back because yeah. he doesn't need me blundering the, in there with my ridiculous question that, you know, yes, he does. He'd rather you said the ridiculous thing than nothing at all. I think that's so important. <laughs> like, um, We are obsessed with being polite. Um, also, I think behind that is obsessed with being right. What's the right thing to say? I don't want to say the wrong thing. And so we, like a maths problem, go, well, I don't know the answer, so I'm not going to put my hand up. And it's so ridiculous because, as, as Rob says in his brilliant book, A Heart That Works, about his son Henry, who died when he was two, there's nothing you can say that's going to make the situation worse. And like I think that's sometimes we slightly we overestimate our own importance. Like, well, if I say the wrong thing, I'm going to devastate them. It's like his son died. <laughs> like that's really awful. It's awful. Like my dad died. You can't really make that worse. You can blunder, sure, but you can't really make the situation worse or better. You can't fix it. And at the same point, you can't make me feel, oh, like what's worse than my dad? It's already happened. I think the big thing for me is have with you. I'm sorry, I don't know what to say. I'm sorry if I get this wrong. Like, you can always apologise. You can attempt, as you said, blunder, ask a stupid question. If you see on their face, they're like, oh my God, what did you just say? Feel free to add in, I'm really sorry. This is a really new situation for me and I think I'm doing it really wrong. But let me let me try and help you. Or if I do say something and it's upsetting, feel free to tell me that wasn't helpful. Like, just be open to being wrong. Because I think if we are open to being wrong, then the other person goes, what can you say? My son just... Like, there isn't a magic formula. There isn't anything but the not trying 
goes back to the isolation we said earlier. So grief makes you feel isolated. You feel like no one cares. When people don't speak, you have evidence. See, no one cares. And I've I've had people say people cross the road to not talk to them because they're so worried. I had a brilliant woman on, Charlotte Bennett, recently who lost um, her child. Her baby died 24 hours after being born. And she said, you know, people had seen her pregnant. Last time they'd seen her was like full, massive baby, all excited. The next time I saw her, there was no baby, no pram. And they just didn't mention it. Oh, they crossed the road. And she's like, we all, you know, we know. So don't be afraid to say, I'm so sorry to ask this. What happened with your baby? And as long as you're coming from this position of like, I'm not trying to make you better. I'm not worrying about me. I'm worrying about you. Then I don't think you can go wrong if you come from that in that place. But yeah, saying nothing is like a slap to the face, basically. There's a lot that previous generations got wrong and hopefully we're getting better at discussing these things. But you've already talked about black armbands. I wonder if, is there anything that previous generations got right that actually (laughs) it would improve? I mean, the black armbands being a case in point, you're talking about a badge, it's the same kind of thing. It's just a a public acknowledgement of your personal situation. Is there anything that the Victorians did because you... Do a lot about Queen Victoria uh, in there. Is anything that they got right? Yeah, I do. I think they got lots right. And I think this is the problem we have with this linear idea of history. We're always like, well, we're moving forward. Everything we do is brilliant. Everything they did was silly. And it's like, no, we can, let's cherry pick the good stuff. So the Victorians had a really strict set of mourning rules. And they, you know, you like by six months you have to do this. And that's mad. Like the timings they had on it was mad. But the respect that they paid to it, I think, was wonderful. Now, they went crazy, <laughs> you know, like black ribbons everywhere, black armband, like, you know, they they really loved it. But I think the idea of being very delicate and kind to someone who's grieving, we've lost that. We've really lost that. And we've really lost that idea of somebody has lost someone, therefore they are delicate, they, are, they should be treated slightly differently. And that's what that black armband signifies so strongly if you see someone in the street with a black armband you already know well I'm not approaching someone going oh you're right mate how are you how's things you know <laughs> you're going like oh I'm I'm so sorry like who who was it what happened so I do think they gave space to grief in a way that we don't perhaps because we are so fast moving and so fast paced and we don't have time for the, the slowness that grief requires I think they they gave that more time than we do you mentioned digital grieving. You've got a section. There's a fascinating section in the book about digital grieving. And I guess there's a, there was always... We're speaking in December and people are doing Christmas cards list. And there's always that moment when you're going through your address book and you realise that you should have crossed someone off because <laughs> they haven't made it you know, through. And that, But that used to be, oh, that was the moment. Or you looked in your phone book or something yeah, like yeah. that. Now, if you go on Facebook or Twitter or social media or, or anything like that, it's... They're all there. All the people who haven't made it through their kind of their digital f- fingerprints are are still there. And I was fascinated by your because you you say your your father died in 1998, so it's actually quite difficult to find his voice. It's actually quite yeah. difficult to see kind of moving images of him. Just can you just explain where you ended up with the difference between someone who can say, "Look here on my phone, here's a video of yeah. the person that I'm grieving," and someone who actually hasn't got that. Yeah, so I describe myself as an analog griever because <laughs> um, he died in '98. So you know, before the internet was really a thing, even though he was obsessed with the internet becoming a thing. So poor, poor, poor him. He would have absolutely loved where we are now. And when I was doing the grief class, it was the first time I did an interview, and someone said, 
oh, I'll show you a picture of them on my phone. I've got a voice note. And I was like, what? 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 What do you mean you've got a no-? And I felt like, almost like someone said, I've got a ghost in my phone. Do you want to see it? Because, yeah, all my stuff is analogue. So it's, you know, it's physical photos with the orange date printed on or it's a VHS that we've copied but no one's got the DVD and we threw away the DVD player. So it's all this completely different way of memorising, memorialising someone compared to digital grief. And the people I've spoken to have lost people sort of post, I suppose it's probably 2004, five something like that. You know, you can go, they have their Twitter page, they've got their Instagram page, they've got mm. voice notes, they've got voicemails, they've got emails. And it's a very... It's a very different thing. Now, what I discovered from writing that chapter was no one's winning. <laughs> when I started it, I was like, oh, they've got they've got everything, all the digital grievers, they're so lucky. And I spoke to them and guess what? They were still grieving. So I was like, oh, I see. It doesn't make it easier. It's just different. I actually have the benefit of it's quite hard if I want to want of a better word, pick the scab because I have it's hard to find a picture of him. You know, I've got a few up, but to actually find something new is quite difficult. Whereas people with digital, it's like it's on your phone. It is so easy to scroll to scroll through things, to just find things. And I know lots of people have said, you know, when they're in a bad place, they might just get on their Instagram and scroll through and look at the photos and make themselves cry. I wonder, it's hard, isn't it? Like, what's the difference between scrolling through someone dead's Instagram and putting on a song that you know they love? Like, you're both looking to find them again. So I don't think either is better, but I think it's a new world that we are struggling to catch up with because it's moving so quickly. And you can see that with what Facebook, Twitter and the other, you know, social apps have had to implement in their policies, grief policies and death policies and bereavement. You can have a Facebook legacy person now. So there's a lot of things they've had to deal with very quickly because people die and all their information is there. And, you know, they were just locking people out of accounts or just de deleting stuff. So I think it's worth us thinking about because we live in that world so much. And I think at the moment we're not really thinking about it enough. Yes, you feel as though it should be possible and maybe this is happening for next of kin to contact a company and say, can you just remove all this? Oh, you, yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't, like, that, that, the people in the grief community will tell you, like, you can't even get phones cancelled. Like, it is, people are still getting letters with it in the same name, being charged, bailiffs coming around. The death admin is terrible. It's terrible. Considering where we're at technology-wise, there is a government service you can apply that will do quite a lot of the government. If you say this person's dead, they will, like, you know, tell all the departments but if you haven't spoken to someone before they've died which is the other thing I say in the book so much if you haven't told someone this is what bank accounts I have this is where this ISA is stored this is what like I'm on Facebook the passwords are written down here like people who are then left trying to unpick a mess of someone's life it just means that for that first year of grieving you are also having to do so much admin and I've got so many stories there's amazing um widow called Stacey Heal who's very active on Instagram and she went recently like I think it was Vodafone, we're just still sending her letters saying we're coming round to take money off you. And it's like, her husband is dead. Like, you have to be sensitive about this. And some companies are better than others, definitely. But some are still acting like, I don't know, like, what are you, you know, you have the, put it in your computer, like, make a programme. If you can send me an email that regularly when I don't want you to, I'm sure you can change your name. So I think we're definitely really behind where we need to be with that. I think this is the last question. I'm, I'm also aware that it's quite a big, it's a big <laughs> subject to just throw in at the end. Sure, go for it. As someone who's had more conversations about grief and mourning than, than, than most people, yep. do people who believe in an afterlife have it easier? 
Or not? Well, it's really interesting. I, as ever, when you approach a subject, thought, yeah, they do, because they think they've gone to heaven. And I interviewed the Reverend Richard Coles, brilliant Richard Coles, and he was like, it's not better, it's just a thing. (laughs) He put it much better than that, but he was like, faith doesn't stop you being in pain. And I think that's what happens with grief quite a lot. You, you've you got your grief and it's so painful. You start looking around. You're like, oh, their grief looks easier than mine. Their dad was 80. Or like, oh, well, they weren't even that close to their mum. That's easier. They believe in heaven. Actually, it's it's all grief. It's all pain. So I don't think it makes it easier. I think it may offer you solace at times, but your person still isn't there. So even if you're convinced they're going to heaven, I'm going to meet them right now where you are, you're still in a, a pain that they're not here mm. now. So having spoken to people with faith quite a lot on the show, they've said to me, yes, I find a peace in it occasionally, but right now I'm dealing with someone I loved died and they're not here. Do you still say uh, someone has passed on or is that is that a way of copping out? I was just, I remember hearing in some church service someone talking about being promoted to glory. <laughs> wow. <laughs> How about that? Wow. So, being promoted to glory. Yes. Congratulations. Daisy. You've just lost your husband to glory, haven't you? Yes. Uh, Gerald isn't here. He's been promoted to glory. Wow. Um, but but we have other ways of saying so-and-so has died, whereas maybe yeah. we should use the word... Died. Died. I say died. Asked. Yeah, I say died. But a caveat this with lots of people are very sensitive about it. And so even though I think we should move towards saying, my dad died, I'm sorry, your mum died, some people find it very upsetting and very difficult. So I always lead, especially my guests, like, what would you like to say? And some people say passed away, passed on or lost. Some people find that so offensive. Lost, I didn't, where are they? I didn't lose them. They're dead. So I think it's it's as ever with grief it's super personal don't be afraid to ask someone or take their lead if they say oh my dad just passed on that's what you're saying (laughs) like follow their lead if they say my dad just died be like great we can all use the d word but i think we are we are moving away from saying passed on and passed away because what does that mean it doesn't mean passed to where it means if you're religious of course you you mean passed to heaven but if you're not then it doesn't mean anything so i think it's very individual but um it's a way of softening it. I, I, yeah. I can remember when a music star dies and you're playing some of their music on the radio, it's somehow easier and softer to yeah. say Irene Cara, who passed away last week. Yeah, yeah. And rather I... than saying Irene Cara, who, who died. I mean, both are fine. I don't think people would complain. Mm. But it's if you're doing a sports... Yeah, I was just over, thinking that now. Would, would you say... I, to be honest, I always say died. And it's all, it's basically every time you do that story, it always takes the same form, which is former FA Cup winner X has died at the age of 79. It's, yeah. al- it's always that construction. It's the what they did, their name, died. That, that's like, right, name. that's journalism, isn't it? And it I, is, guess, yeah. I guess I'm doing sort of conversation. Yeah, mm. either is fine. And I can totally understand when passed away is. Sometimes you don't want to hit people with the D word. (laughs) It seems like died. And it can make make people be like, whoa. I don't, again, I used to get very annoyed about when people say, oh, you lost your father. I didn't lose my father. What the hell are you talking about? My dad died. And it's so, that's the thing. I think we have to stop looking for the right thing and just accept everyone feels very differently about this. And so let's try and be sensitive to people. It's the same when you talk about, you know, mental health stuff. Like some people are very proud to own their mental health diagnosis and other people are like, oh, I don't want you to use that term. I don't want to be, you know, defined by it. So I think we have to go with what we feel people would be best for that person. Are there any times where you think, I wish I wasn't an expert in this? You know, actually, <laughs> can, can I go back to talking about Jane Austen and just doing yeah. stand-up? 
Occasionally, like I definitely, I'm very careful with the podcast. So I don't record it every week. I only do, if I am recording, I try and do one record a week because it's intense. And as I say, very clearly in the book, like I'm not a trained professional, <laughs> like I'm a comedian. So this is just learnt, ex lived experience rather than like, well, as a grief psychotherapist, I can <laughs> tell you. I've spoken to lots of grief psychotherapists. I got them to read the book and check that they were like, yeah, that, that's about right. But yeah, there's definitely times when I have to put a boundary up and protect my my own self and my own grief and not get swept away in thinking that I'll, if I talk to other comedian friends, I'll be like, oh God, there's so much stuff about death. And they go, I literally haven't seen anything. And I'm like, is your Instagram not full of like grief memes? And my friend, <laughs> Sarah, pa I was talking to Sarah Pascoe, she was like, no, I haven't got any. And I was like, what? What? Okay, I'm. I need to unfollow a few accounts because it's yeah. just solid when you're grieving. So yeah, I think I'm slightly skewed to believing that we're all going to die imminently. Carrie Ad Lloyd's book is <laughs> "You Are Not Alone: A New Way to Grieve." Carrie Ad, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you so much. There'll be more with Carrie Ad when we do our Q and A, which will be with you in a few days. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.